today we'll talk about uh, open source, and we have a special guest guest today, Vincent uh, Barmadam. And <laughs> Vincent works as a research advocate at Trasa. And if you check his LinkedIn profile, there are quite a few things there. So he has been on the front page of Reddit. He's making a resource for people who want to learn coding, calmcode.io. He's also an, uh, an organizer. He organized the PyData Amsterdam conference and Saturdays Amsterdam. I think it's an ARC conference, right? Uh, on top of that, he is also a data evangelist and an open source evangelist. He is a creator and maintainer of some open source packages. So that's why we invited you today here to um, our chat. And last but not least, he has over 80 endor endorsements for awesomeness on LinkedIn. Uh, so welcome, Vincent. Thanks for coming to our event. Hi. Um, so the thing with the uh, endorsements for awesomeness, uh, at a previous company, I kind of had this bet with a CTO, like we played a game, who could get the most points for awesomeness on LinkedIn without asking for them. Um, I'm cheating a little bit there, but uh, that's you the are, origin yes. of that. Like, I'm, it's not necessarily that I'm trying to brag as much. It's more that I actually have this bet with this person uh, that is, has been ongoing for years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And when I was reading your bio in LinkedIn, I saw, okay, Awesomeness. Let me check. Okay, let me just uh, you know, endorse. <laughs> <laughs> that one uh, sentence does have an influence on the score. That's true. Um, yeah. Before we get into our main topic on open source, uh, let's uh, talk a bit about your background. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and your journey so far? Um, yeah. It's, so I, I don't have a typical background, I guess. But uh, when I was done with high school, uh, so first of all, uh, I was raised bilingually, so I've uh, I was born in the United States, uh, lived there for a little bit. That I did most of my youth here in the Netherlands, but um, I definitely traveled to the United States, and that's uh, where the accent comes from. Um, but then, when I was done with high school, I wanted to study design. Uh, that was something I was keenly interested in. Um, but then I remember getting a bad grade. Uh, because uh, the, the feedback that I got was, Vincent, you're very creative, but you're not using our 12-step program on brainstorming. <laughs> and I kind of like, well, I don't like where this is going. Um, so then I learned about this field called econometrics. Uh, it's like this applied math thing. And they promised me that if I studied that, that I could predict stocks. And I thought, oh, super awesome, because I don't think you can actually do that. But apparently you can, so I'll study that. And then after you were done with the bachelor's, you find out that it's kind of bohogey. Like, you can't predict stocks. It's just this marketing term that they use. Uh, so then I quickly uh, decided to take my master's in operations research. And around that time, uh, there was also this field called AI and machine learning was kind of becoming a bit more hypey. Uh, and there was this uh, free Stanford course, the Peter Norvik and the Sebastian Thrun one. I was the first student in that. And then I kind of figured, you know, I, I like this programming more than I like being a consultant guy wearing a suit. So I decided, well, I don't know if I'm gonna do a full transition career switch, but I figured I should at least try so after I did college, I wanted to do backpacking through Latin America. And I kind of told myself, you know what, I'll uh, bring a laptop with me and I'll do some consulting while backpacking. And if I, <laughs> and if I prefer to do like the programming over going into clubs every single evening, that's like a sign that this programming death thing is maybe something I need to take serious. Um, and it turns out it's something I took serious. Like uh, I, at some point, uh, you have these people at the hostel, they want to go drinking every night. And at some point, drinking became way more boring than, uh, you know, doing code. I, there's a little bit of passion I found there. So when I came back to the Netherlands, I kind of, I was, um, like, my main thing was I was teaching calculus at this business school. 
And I thought, you know, it's, it's good money, uh, but I needed this data science thing. Uh, it just so happened that uh, a person I met at a meetup was starting a company doing Hadoop stuff and they needed someone who actually understood the math behind machine learning. Uh, so I got myself a gig there. Uh, the ball got rolling. Um, I wanted a PyData to happen in the Netherlands. So then I started doing a little bit of community stuff around it. I'm no longer formally involved with PyData. This took over. Uh, Maricia and Matthijs are doing cool stuff. Um, but I'm still around and um, I did the blog thing and I had lots of side projects. And at some point, uh, you know, uh, that caught the attention from the people over at Raza. Uh, they kind of said, hey, you know, could you do your Vincent stuff, <laughs> but do it on like our stack because we think uh, you might be a person uh, who can help us out there. And that, that's the path, I guess. So they reached out to you. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> it's it, the way I got hired there. I'm, uh, it, it's a little bit interesting because it, it took me a while to realize that they actually wanted to hire me. Like I, <laughs> for, for a very long time, I was actually of the impression they just wanted to do something like a collaborative project or something. Like that was, that was my impression. Um, uh, so at some point they, they actually said, no, no, Vincent, like just, just to be super clear, like, uh, we're talking about a career here, not like a side project. And then, <laughs> Took me like a month before I actually realized that, um, but it's it's been a ride. Like uh, I've been there for like almost a year now. Um, I really dig the culture. Like they, uh, it's a really lovely, diverse mix of people. And that's what's making it fun. Um, like it's not just the machine learning part, but I'm I'm not necessarily in charge. Like we're all in charge. But one of the things I'm trying to pick up is how to do more in uh, non-English languages, um, which is really cool because you know uh, there's plenty of deep learning stuff out there, but um, let's say you train word embeddings that go from left to right because English, well, then that trick's not going to work for Arabic because that's right to left. And, you know, <laughs> I get to actually reach out to like communities and say, look, here's some tools. Please tell me if I need to do more. Um, so that led to a couple of open source projects I got to uh, do, uh, which led to some articles about open source projects that I got to do. Um, and the main thing that I kind of try to do there is uh, we, we have super clever engineers and we have super clever researchers doing a lot of stuff. But it's one thing to have a tool that has cool features and it's another thing to have people understand how the tool works. And there's a lot of nitty gritty stuff in there. Um, and I'm the kind of person who likes teaching. So um, that's what I try to do there. So sure is, it, is it your job to like, as in, so you work as a research advocate at Raza, right? Raza yes, that, that, that's the title that we came up with. Um, so what, what do you do there? What are your responsibilities? So it's so it's um, the only way for me to properly explain it is to make this joke. Because um, I don't know when you started this, because you're also familiar with the data science field. I'm assuming like, yes, it's, not, yes. it's not like you started yesterday, I think. Um, but I th like I started like six years ago, and back then the whole point of you being a data scientist, if we're honest was to figure out what it meant to be a data scientist. <laughs> like it was a little bit of programming. It's a little bit of this. It's a little bit of that. Um, it's like that, I think. It's still like that, but, but people have more feeling for what it exactly is. But if you're asking me, like, what do I do as a research advocate? It's this. <laughs> like, I'm trying to figure out what it means. But there's, some, but there's something uh, about that that's really liberating. So um, the thing is, um, uh, especially with non-English, right? I, I really like the attitude that this job allows me. Uh, I really do my best to make sure that a lot of these non-English tools are well supported in Raza. But I don't want to give the impression that I know what I'm doing. Someone who's fluent in Arabic knows way more about Arabic than I ever will. So a lot of what I'm trying to do is just listen to people like, hey, uh, you're trying to make this digital assistant work with uh, open source tools. Like, what are your problems? 
and maybe I can help you benchmark some stuff or I can proxy stuff to the research team or the research team has like a really cool tool and they would like me to uh, make sure it's well understood. Um, like that's, that's my focus area. And sometimes that means that the best thing I can do is make a YouTube video or a blog post and sometimes some open source tools. Uh, but that's, that's the, the ground I'm trying to, uh, to cover. And um, it, it's a little bit of improvisation to be really honest. Um, but, uh, but it's good improvisation because I'm all the time and I don't get to, and I don't have to pretend like I know everything either, right? Like sometimes when you're a consultant, you're supposed to be the authority figure all the time. Uh, but here I can just say, look, um, I would love to make sure that uh, if you wanna make a virtual assistant that we can do in every language, uh, community, uh, tell me what I need to do and I'll gladly help. That's, uh, that's the main focus I have, I guess. Yes, so basically you're basically somebody between the, the technical team and the user, right? And you're trying to- Yeah, it's, it. okay. it's, it's like, the, like a developer advocate with a little bit more focus towards research. So that means that I have written, uh, I've actually written a research paper by accident this year. turns out I made an open source package that's super useful to some researchers. Uh, but that's like, like I, I make a lot of byproducts, I guess. That's also another way of saying it. Like the, the company has a big mission and um, my role is definitely to support them. Uh, but one of the core things that I you know, do is I have a lot of byproducts that are useful to a lot of people. So like some machine learning debugging tools that work on top of Razda, uh, some tools to help you explore what's in word embeddings, also to investigate the bias that's in them. Uh, these are all things that are not necessarily super at the core of what we do, uh, but they tend to help our community, which is great. And I know a bit about the company, about Raza. Uh, they're basically developing a chatbot, right? Uh, it's a little bit different. Agent. Yeah, so the thing is, it's, it's um, um, Elasticsearch helps you do search, but Elasticsearch, the company, is not implementing that for everyone directly. I mean, they have support mm -hmm. contracts and stuff. But at the same time, like, so our side, yes, we help companies make virtual assistants, but we are, we're building the infrastructure. So like, hey, uh, the standard pipeline for a virtual assistant, uh, and, the, and then if you need a very specific component, you can make that. But we're trying to do the infrastructure layer. That's the... Uh, um, yeah, that, that's the main thing we're trying to do. We're trying to make sure that that is source and pragmatic and that you can work with that. Okay, yeah. So um, like, just, you, you want to host it on your own servers, for example, like for a lot of medicine applications, healthcare, you mm -hmm. care about that. So we, we are trying to make sure that if you're interested in doing this in an open source way, we have the tools for you that it's just a pip install. Okay, yeah, makes sense. So speaking about open source, so what is open source? What we can call open source? So the thing is, I, I kind of have to admit, I'm not, uh, oh, sorry, the cat wants to leave the room. Sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so the thing is, uh, I don't consider myself super duper knowledgeable about the details of this because there are different licenses, for example. Mm -hmm. And I also know that there's uh, a couple of people who um, you know, take these licenses like really, really serious. Um, the way I've always kind of approached it is uh, hey, uh, people made these bag of tools and this bag of tricks that's useful for me. Super cool. Uh, and sometimes I have a bunch of tricks that I feel they're missing. And I'm, you know, people did a lot of work for me. So I have this career that's possible. So I think it's fair that if I've got some pretty cool tools that I can just put that out there. Um, the best example of this, I guess, is like Psyched Lego. That's a thing that I started with uh, Matthijs, who's doing Pirate Amsterdam, by the way. Um, and scikit learn is amazing, but there are like some of these tricks that you know I tend to use like a lot of the time that I use scikit learn, but they're a bit experimental. They won't apply for everyone. 
So I understand that scikit-learn will never host those tools. But nothing is stopping me from making these custom Lego bricks for scikit-learn and then just hosting them myself. Um, so that's how I at least approach a lot of this open source stuff. Like, hey, I kind of have an itch. I kind of want to scratch it. And it's just more pragmatic to open source it. Because <laughs> uh, then other people can find edge cases and we can make the code better together, uh, which wouldn't happen if I was just maintaining my own library. So basically, like everything you put on GitHub automatically becomes open source, right? At least if it's not private repo. Yeah, I mean, there are. So I will say that I do make this this. Um, I try to make this one distinction, though, that I can have something on GitHub and that's fine. But I do like I have this one open source project called Brent, which is I think still a cool idea. But I do regret slightly that I put it up on PyPI because it's just not ready. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you think about it, it's the I know that there's going to be too many edge cases for it to fail. And I do think at some point before you put it on PyPI, it needs to be mature enough. So Brent, like I'd love to work on that someday when I've got time again, but I already have all these other open source projects. So I do think if you host it in GitHub, that's always fine. But there is this maturity step I think you want to consider before you put it up on a, like a public package index, so to say. Okay, what are these? Uh, so you mentioned... Uh... Psychit Lego and then the this other library, right? Brat or uh, there's a bunch. Uh, wait, which one did you say? Yeah, Psychit Lego. Then uh, the 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 one you just mentioned. Uh, so maybe yeah, you can tell us a bit more about these tools. So what what do they do and how did you come uh, come up with these ideas? How did you did it occur to you to start actually developing them and uh, yeah, so put them open source. So usually, um, like either it's a curiosity, like, hey, I want to explore this idea a bit further and see where it goes. Um, and something that will be the category of, I think I found a nice user, a better user interface for a problem. Uh, and I think a nice example for that is this library called Evil. Uh, it's an evolutionary uh, algorithm library. Okay. Um, I thought the name was, was already quite nice because it's an anagram for love, well, love, evil, right? Um, but the, what's in seriousness, uh, like uh, I made that together with Rogier and uh, from Rogier. What was really cool about that is we actually said, okay, what do most people want to do with a genetic algorithm and how can we make it much simpler? Because we noticed that genetic algorithms are usually like a for loop in a for loop in a for loop. And it's, it's easy to write, but it's hard to maintain. So we said, oh, but maybe if we have like a population object and an evolution object, and we, we kind of come up with a functional API for that, like, oh, that just might be a more convenient way to think about evolutionary algorithms. Um, I haven't touched the library in years, I think, uh, but we got like a couple of hundred downloads a week um, and people blog about it just because the API is much simpler. And, uh, and I like to think that uh, another library, Clumper, which is like pandas, but for JSON objects that can be nested, and it also has that feel of, hey, I want to have a better API. And I've got this thing called Memo, which is a set of decorators that just log the output of functions. So if you're doing grid search stuff, you just want everything in a nice little JSON file. Memo just makes that easy. Like the API, like that's that's like one branch of packages that I've made that just tries to make that easier. And I guess the other kind of package that I make is just more tools that integrate with existing ecosystems. So uh, for scikit-learn, for example, I've got scikit-lego, which is like my building brick thing. I've got human learn, which is um, make, making it easier to have rule-based systems inside of scikit-learn. Um, so you can just have your domain person say, oh, if this, then that, and uh, that's useful. That's, yeah, you know, it's just uh, making if statements grid searchable. That's pretty useful. Um, and I've also got this package called what lies. Now, 
what lies is uh, trying to figure out what lies in word embeddings, the double meaning. Um, but the, this, the point- This visualization tool, right? Well, we yeah, but also to make all these word embeddings um, available as so I could learn. So I'm able to load in all these word embeddings and visualize them, but you can also just chug it into a scikit-learn pipeline for your first benchmarks. Mm -hmm. And in the end, like that scikit-learn feature is the feature that I tend to use quite often. Like, hey, uh, this model is like 10 times as slow, but is it also 10 times as accurate? Can I just quickly benchmark that? Mm -hmm. And it helps if you can just click it into scikit-learn for this. Um, so one of the main features of what lies, I would argue, just uh, it's pipeline compatible, so you can quickly do uh, comparisons. Okay. Well, you mentioned quite a few. I don't know. I I was trying to count, but then I, at some point it was just too difficult. You mentioned I, like ten of them, or how uh, many? No, it's not that. It's not that bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have it. On, I have the page open on my blog here. But so, I mean, I also I also do lots of stuff for Raza, but that's my employer, so that's cheating. Um, no, I like I have to be honest. Like I do write my packages in such a way that I don't expect them to cause lots of maintenance. Um, like I've got one thing called Schedulord, but it's like a thing that I've made that makes it easier for me to maintain my cron jobs on my Raspberry Pis. Um, like, yes, I make documentation, but in reality, I has like five users, <laughs> and that's fine. Um, and I also have this other tool called Make Test Docs, but that's a, that's a package that has two functions, um, and it just makes it easier for you to write unit tests uh, for like your markdown files. So like if you have a Python example in your readme file or in your make docs template, um, you can just add one or two functions and then you can also have your documentation be your unit test. Okay. So and it's easy to maintain two functions. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's not too bad. Yeah, it's, but what is interesting, like when you were saying naming all these things, like what caught my attention was the names of these packages. I feel, I feel they are all very creative. So what, how do you pick up the names for, the, for, for your projects? It's funny you say that. So um, what I usually do, like my, my approach is pretty, pretty silly. So a while ago, together with a buddy of mine, I made a website called makenames.io. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really silly idea. And the idea behind the website is that we just use Pokemon names <laughs> uh, as like a training data set to generate new names. I think we also have the Ikea catalog <laughs> as a corpus that we use for this. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you, you can you can smell from a distance here like this is not meant to be a serious project, but we host, but we you know, the whole point of the project is to come up with a better name, but we call it Make Names IO because it's really obvious what it does. So what I usually try and do is I just spend like ten minutes generating names, and then part of me gets frustrated because all the names are kind of silly, and then usually the frustration you know accumulates into a sentence that just says, ah, oh, I just want my package to make it clear I'm trying to do X. Oh, X, that's a pretty good name. So. So for Psyched Lego, it was, hey, I just want to have like Lego bricks that you can just click at the Psyched, oh, Psyched, learn Psyched Lego. Okay, that works. Oh, I want to have like, oh, I, I kind of want to have humans put rules into Psyched Learn. Human rule. I want to know what lies in word embeddings. Okay, what lies? I just want my JSON to clump together. Okay, clumper. Uh, I want something that helps me memorize stuff. Okay, memo. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. For, for me, usually this is the most difficult part of creating a project. Like how do I name it so it gets attention? Um, and then I come up with like the most boring names possible. So a thing that you can do here, and I'm not suggesting this will make you more productive, but, <laughs> um, but I, I really have some great memories of this. Uh, I, in a past career, I've done some consultancy work for the Dutch flower auction. 
and uh, and eventually the team that I was in was just amazing. Like really cool people. We had a great time. Like we, every day there was like someone with a good joke and we laughed about it. But the reason why we had that vibe also is the culture that we created. Be because, you know, every time we had a service, we had to come up with a name for the service. So we actually ended up trying to celebrate that. Every time there was a new service, we got to have like the conversation again. <laughs> just give you an impression of the names that we came up with. So there was this SQL database service, like it was a backend. And we had to come up with a name. So we said, oh, let's call it uh, Steven SQL. You know, <laughs> Steven SQL, that's great. And then, and then we had to upgrade it. So then we had a meeting. We literally had a meeting about this, like a competition of names. So version two of this thing was called Steven SQL, the SQL. <laughs> you know, and then we had this sort of document store, which we called Jason Bourne. <laughs> And thing, like, this is a really silly thing. Like, I don't think you should run your company based off of like this weird cultural thing. But the thing with this was the team actually got excited for every service we got to add <laughs> because for like a full week while making the service, there'd be a competition internally for who could come up with the funniest name. And the, and the thing is like, because you come up with this funny name and you're actually thinking like, oh, what should the service actually do? Oh, it's like a butler. Okay, famous butlers. <laughs> um, it, like it turned it turned out to be really enjoyable and surprisingly communication became super clear because we always came up with like a really clear name of what the service should be doing mm -hmm. um, yeah, it makes sense like there was all the names you say like they do make sense like i can say it lego okay yeah so you have building blocks uh, of uh, uh, yeah i actually wanted to ask you what does it do uh, i get an impression from the name that you have like some building blocks and you can like put together some sort of a pipeline or what, what oh, so it's all pipe it's uh, scikit learn compatible pipeline components uh, some of them are really fancy some of them are not uh, i mean so a simple example is we have um so let's say you train a machine learning model and then during prediction there's an outlier so like usually values are between zero and one suddenly during inference there's like a million so your model is going to do something bad there um, so we have one feature that just says, hey, take the max value and let's clip it. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we ever get a million, it's going to get truncated down to one again. You know, that's a pipeline component. It's not useful for everyone, but might be useful to some people someday. Okay. Uh, so, so instead of reinventing, like reinventing the wheel, you can just get this thing, plug into existing pipeline and, uh, and use it. Yeah. And I mean, there are some, we have some meta components that are pretty interesting. Like if you've never seen meta components before, definitely check that out. So one thing that you can do, you know how a classifier says, like, if the probability is above 0 0.5, it's one, and it's one class, and otherwise it's zero. It will be nice if you can grid search on where the threshold value is, right? Mm -hmm. So it would be nice if you could say, oh, well, I want more precision. So then we're going to move that to 0 mm -hmm. 0.8 instead of 0 0.5. So we also have tools where you can grid search this and investigate. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, we have a question about... Uh like getting started at uh, with open source. So the question is, I've been coding for a while and going to study uh, computer science at university next level. If you were this person, how would you begin contributing to open source? Uh, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Like um, <clears throat> one thing that typically should be said is like, if you want to have an open source project that other people use and you're going to come up with from scratch, you can the, probably the first thing you should wonder is, well, is it going to be easier for me to maintain a tool and convince other people that they should use it? <laughs> or is it going to be easier for me to just sort of go to a existing project and talking to the maintainers there, like, hey, maybe I can make a contribution there. Uh, that's also fine. Um, <clears throat> another thing that I would argue here is, um, like, if I'm a maintainer of a project, then I tend to understand the project really well. 
What I tend to not understand is what it's like not to understand the project. Mm -hmm. So it might be that, yeah, there's an error message somewhere, but that's really intuitive only if you understand how the entire thing works. Um, so you know, if you're trying to commit to open source and you just notice that you're learning a tool and you're just frustrated because there's an unclear error message, that's an excellent thing to keep in the back of your mind because what you can do is you can then open up a GitHub issue and say, look, I hit my head 10 times on this thing. <laughs> can I please change the error message here? Um, it's like uh, if you want to start uh, <clears throat> contributing to open source, the first, first thing you can do is you know just start using tool. You have a yes. problem and then you create an issue. This is already a contribution to open source, right? Yeah. Like at Raza, for example, we actually have this uh, contributor program. Like we like, like people put genuine effort into maybe talking about Raza, so we like to give rewards for that. Um, so we have like an internal Slack uh, forum where you can ask questions to each other. And if you want to become a part of that, uh, you can. If you get like a PR merge, then you're in. But also, if you give like a good talk or like a couple of good blog posts, then we're, you're, we also consider you a contributor, so to say. Um, but another thing that might help, like especially if you're making your first actual commit, though. Um, maybe don't worry too much about making your first commit. Maybe also think about like, hey, do I understand how setup.py works? <laughs> and do I understand tools like uh, Flake and Black and PyTest and pre-commit hooks? Like usually I've noticed you can, understanding Python and scripting a little bit is one thing, but actually understanding all the stuff around it, like also how does Git work, right? <laughs> um, I realize that it doesn't make it less intimidating to make a PR, but I do want to acknowledge like investing in that is still very sensible. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically, invest into understanding how Python works, like all these um, you know simple tools that we have in Python, plus learn a bit of Git, Git and GitHub, right? Like yeah. how to actually commit, merge, push, uh, uh, create a merge request, things like that, right? Yeah, and what is continuous integration, GitHub uh -huh. Actions? I mean, I, I realize that by naming all of these tools, I'm not necessarily making it easier for people to get started. Um, but uh, but and also like uh, disclaimer, it's my website. Calm Code has tutorials for all of these things uh, because I've noticed that a lot of people, you know, uh, teaching yourself all of these tools isn't necessarily arbitrarily easy. Um, but uh, but it, it but it does make sense to invest a little bit more in programming maturity, such as you're comfortable outside of a Jupyter notebook as well. Like I think that might be a thing that a lot that stops a lot of people. Like if you're used to just staying inside of a Jupyter notebook, uh, you're missing out a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's say I use Scikit-Learn or any other library. Doesn't matter. And then I see like, okay, I want to contribute to this library, but I don't know how exactly. Let's say I already know a bit of uh, Git. I already know a bit of Python. So what are my next steps? Um, <clears throat> I mean, so the path I walked is a little bit different um, because I organized all these events. So most of the packages that I contribute to are maintained by a person I've actually met in real life, right? And that, that makes it easy. Um, because they're, they're kind of like, oh, it's the, the guy from Amsterdam. <laughs> and oh, he has an idea. Okay, I'll listen to it. Um, the unfortunate truth is also like if, if you have a big project, right? Like that's you, like a lot of people want to contribute to the big projects. Um, I mean, Pandas has like thousands of issues, if not contributors, right? So it's also like just maintaining that is, is tricky. Um, so maybe it will be more interesting to just go for a smaller library that you think like, hey, that's a pretty good idea. And just reach out on the GitHub issues to say, hey, I'm thinking about maybe adding this feature. Is this something you're interested in? 
Um, like don't start working on the feature if the maintainer hasn't shown interest in it because otherwise you might be wasting time, right? Um, but go for smaller projects. Uh, a, a project I contributed to a while ago, um, that's, uh, the, the checklist one, uh, was, I think it was called Dino, uh, Dion, that's the one. Uh, so Dion is a checklist for like, hey, you're starting a machine learning project. Here's all the mm -hmm. unintended side effects that might happen. Just check them off before you actually deploy it. Um, and they're interested in just, you know, stories of things that failed in the past. <laughs> like, <laughs> they, they accept anecdotes for their documentation page. And I had a few. Um, That's an awesome project. Yep. No, I can. Uh, like Dion is uh, as far. I, I, I'm almost at the point where I think that uh, it's one of the most impactful projects when it comes to preventing a whole lot of bad things mm -hmm. with machine learning. Uh, Dion is amazing. If you haven't checked it out, check it. Yeah, we will share the links after after the. Uh, Okay, uh, so your suggestion basically is, uh, okay, there are big projects like Pandas, like Scikit-Learn, maybe they're just too big. And I know, for example, in Scikit-Learn, they also have like a special policy. If you want to submit a new algorithm, they have to stand like the proof of time or something like that. Test so of, the, test of, the test, test of, time. of time. Yes, yeah. exactly. You cannot just submit a random algorithm that let's say that you created yesterday and you think that it's great. So like there, there, there is a certain process, mm -hmm. but maybe for smaller projects, uh, uh, like it's just easier to get started because the code base is smaller, right? There are fewer issues and then it's just maybe easier to, to start. I mean, the, the main thing that I suppose, it's, it's also a psychological thing, I guess. So let's say that someone is interested in contributing to Scikit Lego. Like the main concern, there's two concerns that I don't have as a maintainer. One of them is, is this actually useful in a more general crowd setting or is it just this useful for this one person? Mm -hmm. And second, um, if something breaks, is that person going to be around or do I have to maintain this, <laughs> right? So it the... The thing you have to do in the issue list is also maybe check if you're interested in helping out maintaining it and also to, to sort of explain that to the maintainer. Because um, no one likes to inherit legacy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's also a part of it, I suppose. But it's easier to have a conversation in uh, a more smaller uh, setting. That's definitely true. Okay. And um, we have another question. Like, how do, you time uh, how do you find time and energy to work on so many side projects? Because you mentioned quite a few i don't know 10 20 oh quite a few right yeah in addition <laughs> to the stuff you're doing at work like at work you're also contributing to open source and then you uh come from work to home which i guess happens in the same room these days and then these days it does yes, yes. <laughs> then you start working on your personal project so do you have any uh, productivity tips uh or um so one th one thing I do want to acknowledge is that I'm certainly like a lot of my open source projects are done during my employer's time. Like I, just, I do, I should acknowledge that, right? First and foremost. That, uh, and, and the reason why that matters is um, even if I'm not working on a project that's personal, I'm still exposed to maintaining a project and learning on the job a little bit, which I can also apply in my open source stuff. No, it's also the other way around. Like I think my employer really doesn't mind that I have these open source projects, but it's, it's worth to mention. Like I've, I've, it's easier for me, I suppose. I mean, the other thing is like, at some point I became older than 30 and I also just looked at what I do during the day. And, and, and you know, you look at your life and you kind of go, Jesus, Finsley, you're spending a lot of time playing video games. Are they really fun? <laughs> is, that, is, that, is it really, is, like, is, is that like quality of life? And then you just, at least I realized that they're not that fun anymore. Like the, the stuff that I love doing these days is hanging out with friends. That's amazing. Do a little bit of exercise being, you know, at my house with my wife and cats. But the video games just, yeah, they're not that fun anymore. So instead, what I try to do is I try to 
you know, look at, consider some open source work and just think, okay, that, that's, that's good to maybe think about. Uh, and another thing that I, I find that really helps me uh, is I have one of these um, like e-ink drawing tablets. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most productive thing you can do is not program. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if you're working on a technical problem, you need to have the solution in your head before you even type a character, right? So what I really try to do is I try to have the implementation at least conceptually down before I start writing. It doesn't work for every feature. Sometimes you need to do a bit in the notebook to explore, but I have found that a lot of people just start writing code without Mm -hmm. thinking up front what they're supposed to do. And a lot of time it's wasted solving the problem. So if you can prevent that, I mean, it's pretty easy to be productive, I think. Yeah, uh, like speaking of that, I remember your pin tweet from your profile, like uh, the problem you, well, <laughs> yes. how does it go? Like, uh... um, I'll, I need to check Twitter to make sure I'm not mispronouncing, but uh, I got, um, let's, uh, yeah, so there's there's a picture, but the, my, my quote on Twitter is, uh, Vincent prefers common sense over hype. Let's not solve the wrong problem. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, and I really stand by that. Like, I, th- I think, especially in data science, it's a genuine risk because um, you have like the, uh, the actual problem that your business is trying to solve, which then gets translated in this analytical problem, which has a number that you can optimize. And then people do a lot of grid search to get like a 1% reduction in that cost function without worrying about the 10% error in translation that happened in the first place. Um, like that, I, if there's ever been a problem in data science, it's this. Yeah, that's, that's a huge problem. So. Coming back to open source, um, like how, in your opinion, does a good open source project look like? What are the attributes of a good uh, project like? Maybe do you have some sort of checklist uh, for for that? Yeah, I have some things. I mean, um, so there's a couple, I think I saw, um, there was a blog post where someone was analyzing the Spacey project and sort of how they work. And they were using a term, I think they called it, Stewardship, uh, if that makes stewardship, yeah, like so, being a steward for a project, right? Yeah, something like that. But also, like, uh, suppose that your algorithm works twice as fast, but it's not in the docs. No one's gonna care, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, the, the whole point of a project is to help people solve a problem, mm-hmm. and if your docs aren't up to scratch for that, if if your GitHub is all over the place, if there's you know, it's not just about your code. There's stuff around that that you got to take care of. And I like seeing people take an effort in that. Like it's, it is a little bit weird to go to a documentation page. It has like all the API things described, but no getting started guide. Like that really mm-hmm. grinds my gears. Like if there's no getting started guide, how am I supposed to get started? And there are so like projects with just two functions so then you don't maybe need one, but like, come on, like you, you need a place to get started. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I like seeing projects where they've thought about this, where how do I actually get a person from knowing nothing to solve a problem like that that path needs to be defined in a way um so i my rule for like bigger projects uh let's take clumper as an example um so i really like having like the first page that you land on i just be like an overview of stuff that you can expect as like the home page then i have me or yeah just a read me like the installation some of the bait like what problem is i what problem am i trying to solve maybe a logo uh maybe also like a contribution thing but then I have, uh, so that's one of the four pages. Then I have one page called uh, guides, which is just getting started, doing the advanced thing. Uh, like I try to have some markdown files for that. Uh, then I try to have an API where just every function is described clearly, uh, preferably with like a picture in every function, just to give like an overview. 
That's also why I'm really proud of the clumper docs because every method has a, a picture showing what's happening. Uh, and then I, if, if possible, I try to have like an examples list as well, where you can see the package being used for like a particular problem. Mm -hmm. um, so if you go to the what lies documentation page, um, I, there's one page on like, how can you use this tool to do research in bias in word embeddings, which is a problem. And there's another one where I show like, hey, let's say you're working on Arabic and you're looking for embeddings. Here's a benchmarking guide. Mm -hmm. uh, and I like to think that those examples give like a little bit of extra context and make it easier for people to repeat what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but like that, that works well for my projects and it works well mm -hmm. for me. Like if I documentation is not done unless it has an API and examples. Mm -hmm. um, so packages that have, that have more complex um, parts to them, uh, this is what I try to do. So basically, uh, README that states clearly what the project can do for you, right? And then having a bunch of tutorials like getting start guide, and then some advanced things, and then some examples how this library can be used. Yep. Uh, what What about contribution guide? Like for people who want to contribute, like is it also something that you should think about and it should be on the checklist? Or... So I usually have it on the. Um... To be honest, I'm looking at the what lies uh, example here, and I don't see anything mentioning about a contribution there. If you go to the the, the readme on GitHub, it is there. So okay, uh, issue. Um, now, so so one thing um, I'm I try to make it clear that every uh, like issue will be considered, but I want to be a little bit careful that I don't make the suggestion that every issue is immediately going to be implemented or that I have the time to do that. Um, one thing that also in, in terms of stewardship that I want to pay attention to, because I've started noticing that on some of my repos, um, some people are really unfriendly. Like just wondering, like, are you sitting on a bag of nails? Like, what, what is wrong with you? Why are you so unfriendly? I'm doing volunteer work maintaining this stuff. Like, why are you so angry about this one particular feature not being in there? Uh, so one thing in terms of like contribution guide and that sort of thing, I really, if people are on GitHub, I really do try to emphasize like, it's small things like don't write sentences at all caps. It's like, mm -hmm. it reads as if you're shouting to me and I'm doing volunteer work, like, don't do that. Uh, so I, I do try to uh, steer conversations on my issue list in that direction if people, uh, I remember one guy on, on what lies saying like, hey, you're using Altair, but you should be using Bokeh, it's way better. <laughs> like, <laughs> which would lead to like this really heated debate and like he wasn't even willing to contribute. So it was like a really mm -hmm. weird thing. Um, but that's also something that uh, I try to pay attention to. But if you're starting out, you should probably not worry too much about this. Mm -hmm. so, but don't use all caps when you're <laughs> adding like, an issue. Like that's rude. Number one thing on the contribution guide, right? Yeah, don't don't use caps. And uh, many of us, us, or you, get paid uh, to work on open source, but most of us do not. So most of us work on uh, private projects for the company. But sometimes we get to work on some libraries internally at our companies mm -hmm. that aren't necessarily specific to this company. Uh, let's say I'm working on a project on some library and I think it's useful. So it's not too specific to this company and I think other people will find it useful as well. And I want to release this thing as an open source project because I think other people will benefit from that. Uh, do you have any tips, any recommendation? How do I go about convincing my employer to, to let me do it? I mean, so I, again, I consider myself a little bit lucky because I, I've been organizing conferences and stuff. So it makes it easier for me to make this claim. Uh, but I've always been able to go to my employer and kind of go like, you know, you want to hire people? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's marketing. 
Like if you're the company who's sort of doing a really, even if it's a silly little project, like I, I, a simple example, I, I just saw this new library that allows you to make matplotlib charts in the command line. Like it's all OSCII art, but it's like an actual genuine chart that follows the, the matplotlib API. The thing is like, if that, it's really silly, but you, if you see that project and see there's a company behind it, you are gonna like just check them out real quick, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. a thing you're just gonna do. You're like, hey, if, if this sort of stuff is a byproduct of the people working there, that might be a fun place to work. Was it the byproduct? I think so. Like, um, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, like, uh, like uh, I didn't fully go down the rabbit hole on that one. Uh, but it's, a, but the thing it definitely is, like, if you make a couple of cool open source projects, you're going to get attention from people. And also, if memories, like, if experience is any indication here, uh, a lot of these open source projects have been topics of talks that were well received. Um, and if you're presenting a package that uh, you maintain together with, uh, you know, your colleagues, a, it's good for morale. But B, it might be content for talks, which in turn is also pretty good for hiring. And you know, it, um, it's like what the Basecamp people did. I don't know if you saw that. They decided not to spend any uh, money anymore on marketing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and instead what they did is they built this garbage fire, which they literally did. Like it's a, it's a big garbage um, like bin with, with a giant flame in it. And you could send them an email and they would print the thing that you want to burn. And it would literally like be on a conveyor belt and would fall in and they had a webcam. It's a really silly thing, <laughs> but they had a blog post about how they built this. <laughs> they got a whole lot of traffic and they actually got like people buying their product because of this. Um, there's something hey, there. Yeah, so how do I convince my employer instead of you know investing in marketing, investing in building this <laughs> garbage <laughs> fire? Well, I, 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 <laughs> Uh, bef before people interpret this as build a garbage truck <laughs> fire thing. Uh, no, but, but like, it depends on your company, of course. And I know, for example, if you're in, um, in financials, uh, people tend to be a little bit more strict mm -hmm. uh, because yes. they want to be careful that whatever you do in your uh, work time is not associated as like financial advice. I mean, there's, there's legal reasons. Mm -hmm. Fine. Like, uh, it's perfectly fine to respect those. But um Every tech company, I think, is hiring, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's it, it, you don't want to be the one company who's sponsoring an event, uh, but doesn't do any tech talks. It's that. Mm -hmm. And you get an extra bonus if you do some open source work, if you can kind of brag about that. Mm -hmm. And if I can, um, I used to work at this company and they kind of, that was a, I, I think they still do that. I'm not sure. But um, I know some companies who go as far as say, you get one day a month to do open source work. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, um, you could also look at it as training, if I'm honest, because mm -hmm. if in the beginning of the year, you haven't, you're not good enough, uh, good enough is not the right word, but you're not at the spot yet where you're comfortable making open source requests. But by the end of the year, you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I can send you to a two-day training, but <laughs> I think it's going to be more meaningful if we can get you maybe there, right? Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you're investing time, but you're getting stuff back. And mm -hmm. I, I think you're... You, odds are that you're going to end up with something more original uh, if you invest uh, in your team mm -hmm. this way. And um, so you mentioned uh, uh, conference speaking and yep. uh, we have a question from Miha. Do you have any advice for somebody who, who is starting uh, their uh, data science career and want to do their first conference talk? Yeah. Um, so what, <laughs> what do they do? To be honest, it's a strange thing. Like um, so two things, I guess. One of them is imagine what it's like for the person reviewing you. Because in the end, like every conference, there's a group of people looking at the proposal and just going, would I, would I go to this talk? 
So anything you can do sort of there would be good. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to maybe guess who's going to be reviewing because every conference is different. But at the PyData Amsterdam one, when I was around, we just had a simple rule, like, would you go to this talk? Like, it's hmm. interesting. Would you go there? Um, and in Amsterdam, we were a little bit cheeky because, uh, like, if you went to London, it's a bit more financial, a little bit more consult, a little bit more serious. Uh, and if you go to the Amsterdam one, like, we have a ball pit sponsor. <laughs> so, like, the vibe of the conference is also, if you did something amazingly silly but crazily educational, tell us about it. Uh, so my favorite example, and that's the second point I want to make. Um, there was a person who had a blog post in Amsterdam and he did research on which words in metal lyrics are the most metal. Like for all, <laughs> like all the English words in the dictionary, which words are the most metal and can I do something semi-scientific to figure that out? And he wrote a blog post about it, but he never considered that this would be like an amazing Python talk. And to mm -hmm. me, this is still one of my favorite examples because... I remember going up to the person like explicitly saying, look, if you're uncomfortable on stage, like let me know, I'd love to maybe help you with that. But you have to send that in as a talk. That's an amazing topic. Mm -hmm. And there's so many people who just don't recognize that what they have to say is actually pretty interesting to a whole lot of people. Um, and throughout PyData, I've had to do this a bunch of times. Like I was actually uh, a little bit shocked that a lot of people who have super interesting ideas don't talk about them. So first of all, if you've never done this before, um, it is pretty interesting, like, hey, what, are, what is the weirdest thing about the Pandas API that saved your day this one time? <laughs> like, that can be super interesting. Uh, I, I also remember this one talk about, like, how does the nitty gritty details of parsing JSON actually work? Mm -hmm. And then at the end, someone says, and by the way, they didn't accept my PR for Pandas, which I'm bummed about, but this is how you should do it. I mean, <laughs> you want to get something that you're, you care about, and uh, odds are it's going to be interesting to more people. Like, recognizing that is one thing. Um, and the other thing is just try to write your proposal in such a way that if you were to read it out of the blue, you would actually go to the talk because that's what people go mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. So basically contribute to open source, but don't stop there. Uh, like it's also a good idea to submit a, a conference talk proposal. And especially like if you work and you want to release uh, something you work on uh, at work as an open source project, it's good for employer, employer branding, right? Especially like if you add to just releasing a package, if you can also go somewhere and talk about this, then employer yeah. probably will agree to that, right? Yeah, it depends on the conference, of course. I mean, there, there are conferences that are a little bit more enterprisey, and there's PyData, mm -hmm. which is a little bit more community focused. But uh, but even, you know, even if there's an interesting data set that you've just found and you're just mm -hmm. playing with, um, I remember um, the first PyData conference I hosted, we had uh, my former boss who just said, hey, I scraped the entire meetup API. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, there, and there's a couple of meetups that are just outliers and I would like to figure out what, why. <laughs> this is just an entertaining talk. And uh, the, the thing also is, I guess, um, the cool thing about talks like that is you're being entertained and you're learning. Like that's the golden thing. Mm -hmm. If you can do both, that's amazing. But uh, the way that, you, that people were learning was uh, he was just showing how the tools could be used in combination. So yeah, he built a scraper, but then he put it into Neo4j and that, and he did that in a clever way, which made like exploring the data set just a little bit easier. And then he had a couple of like good looking charts with some interesting conclusions. Um, and then half the room was entertained because the data set was interesting and they already knew the tools. But the other half of the room learned something because you know a lot of the stuff that people take for granted is gonna be useful to a whole bunch of newcomers. That's also mm -hmm. a fact of life. Yeah, we have another related question from Aitaha, I don't know if I, uh, sorry if I mispronounced uh, your name. Um, 
how open source can help you to land a job or establish a company? Do you have any idea how it can do that? I, like I would, I'm going to try to give some advice here, but the one mm -hmm. thing I do want to mention is that I have been ridiculously privileged in the way that I've been hired. So I, it's hard for me to like, I'll get, I'll try to give some advice, but I simply don't know what it's like to start out because every time the last 10 years, every company that hired me did, I didn't have to talk to a recruiter. It was always the CTO like reaching out to me and that's how the ball got rolling. So it's, it's hard for me to give like proper advice, but um, I mean, in the end, it's all about explaining to the other party that you might be a team member that's going to make them better in something. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't worry too much about like a, you know established company. I mean, there's lots of interesting things that you can do and you might be surprised. I know someone, for example, um, who was really looking for a job where there was someone around where they could learn from. But then he realized like there was this analyst job at a local municipality. But the thing with the municipality was like, they really had zero talent uh, like in that area. So they were really just getting started. And then the person just thought, you know, that also means that I have a lot of control over what I learn. And that also means that if I'm the person around who has to figure everything out, like I'm being paid to learn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I don't have to necessarily join a established company. You can also just join maybe something that's smaller, more local, uh, and sort of learn that way. Mm -hmm. How does contributing to open source can help me get, uh, let's say, a better job or just a job? Like, let's say I'm looking for a job now and I heard that uh, this recommendation, hey, if you really want to stand out from the rest of applicants, what you can do is go contribute to open source. Like, is it something, do you think it's something helpful to do? Or? I think, so. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, just like... Uh, if I, uh, I don't interview people for jobs that often anymore, but like back when I was a consultant, um, if there, there's a couple of open source projects that we use the clients a lot, oh, and you've contributed a couple of meaningful things there. Okay, then you probably understand the tool. Like that's just not a concern. That's mm -hmm. probably not enough to like say, oh, we're gonna hire you instantly, right? <laughs> you also wanna check some other things, I guess. Um, but it's certainly a boon. Um, I wouldn't overstress it though. Like there's other things that you can do as well. Um, one thing that is a downside of open source commits, if you like, if you're recruiting for just that, um, if you have a family, right, <laughs> you have kids yes. at home, and you're not going to spend your evenings doing open source, uh, and that's fine. So one thing that that you should be mindful of is there are lots of people who don't have open source in their resume, especially when they're somewhat older, and it's fine. Um, if there's if there's a company that has like a good career path for you, they're probably just interested in the capable and enjoyable colleague and open source is a way to at least sort of help you be able to convince the other side that you're indeed capable. Um, and, uh, probably giving talks at conferences about this, uh, like the most metal uh, word in English <laughs> is another way of doing that, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and, and all, yeah. Uh, like, and also just the thing about the conferences thing that I just maybe want to admit, my, my most popular talk was the one about uh, simple models like how to win with simple, even linear models, the title. Mm -hmm. and, that, and to be honest, that's a talk about linear regression. That's literally mm -hmm. the only thing I'm really talking about during that talk. Most views ever. Like um, you might be of the impression that you have to do something super fancy, state of the art. If you can just explain yourself the problem, that's more than enough. Yeah, uh, so entertain and uh, teach, right? Yeah, so talks that do well on, well, you don't have to do both. Like if, you, if you're if you really good at teaching and you're not that entertaining, it's still a very valuable talk, of course, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and we can't have a conference with just entertaining talks that aren't educational in any way. 
because uh, that will be a comedy show. But um, but yeah, like those two things always did well for me when I was mm-hmm. reviewing. I would say, yeah. yeah. You should probably share the link to this talk. I, uh, yes. After I, the show, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there's, so, there's, there's a bunch of talks, but yes, yeah. I'll share. So them you did. You mentioned one thing that uh, really caught my attention: that in in your career, throughout your career, you got jobs in a bit of unconventional way that it would a CTO who who reaches so it it was CTO who reaches out to you and like hey do you want to work with us so how did you end up in this position that luck. CTOs reach out to you but like you also did something in addition to luck right so how yeah, did but, you... but I mean so uh, I mean that I, I don't want to but I still want to admit I think a large chunk of it is luck so um usually this happened because of meetups right and, mm-hmm. and also like the cto didn't come up to me and say you have the job like this is how mm-hmm. the conversation gets started the ball gets rolling but um no so i remember um there was a meetup called Amsterdam. um Amsterdam. yeah so it was back when the app uh, like when iphones were new <laughs> back in those <laughs> days uh, and i just and i remember sort of saying like hey maybe i should talk at these events and sort of meet people who can program uh, so what I started doing is just uh, give free training in R. Like I told app developers, like, hey, if you've got data, you can analyze and understand your users. Um, I want to practice this craft. So I'll just give free trainings. And, and you know, people people remember the, ca- the kid who did that. And if the training was good, they would refer you. So mm-hmm. that sort of helps. And I guess uh, I've always I've always understood that it's much more scalable if you can organize your life such that people know you otherwise you have to remember everyone like if people know you that's easier um and, for, and you know it's just meeting people at meetups uh, saying yes to a bunch of things experimenting here and there um yeah that's how people find you mm-hmm. so it's not just open source right so no, 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 no. also teaching giving free trainings that's just being there being out there being more visible and then this is how you got lucky air quotes yeah, but also if, if, if I really think back, I mean, when I got started, I was like the first person I knew in my social circles that called themselves a data scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, the skills I had back then were good enough for me to get started. They're not now. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're a data scientist now, but you've never worked with a cloud provider, it's already a lot trickier to get a job than back then. Uh, back then, if you knew what a random forest was, you already had like a pretty good salary, which is crazy, but uh, that is how it worked back then. Uh, similarly, uh, I think, I mean, also back then, a lot of companies didn't have their first recommender yet. So I was part of that generation that got to build recommenders for the first time, which is also just experience that a lot of other people don't have. Mm-hmm. Like I can literally say that the, uh, the Dutch BBC has a recommender that I just designed for a large extent, which, you know, uh, it's, it's easier to get a bigger snowball going if the snowball's already going. And mm-hmm. I, was, I was there at the right moment at the right time. And I also like, don't underestimate, um, Living in Amsterdam, like if you want to attract speakers to your conference, I think it's a lot easier to attract great speakers if you live in Amsterdam uh, than if you live in a small town in France somewhere, right? I mean, <laughs> all of that stuff also, you know, a lot of luck. Okay. So probably now if you want to get noticed instead of free, free trainings about R, you should do a free training about cloud tools, right? Uh, yeah. I, uh, I, true, but also a thing to remember... Uh, I think seven years ago, like now you have like a bazillion people on YouTube teaching you how to use cloud tools, mm-hmm. right? You didn't have yeah. that back then as well. So yeah. that is also different. Um, but I guess also like, 
one thing I will say back then, I wasn't necessarily really hustling, but I remember going like, oh, I want to do free trainings. Well, I need a, I need a room. Hmm. I'll just call a bunch of companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, um, just by like, but you know, you give it a try, but I gave it like a serious try. And you do like you do turn it into a little game. Like, how do I convince people to like give me their office during the weekend? And uh, oh, I'll train two of your people. (laughs) You know, you learn negotiating a bit. Like, all these are life skills, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But um, yeah, but another thing that I think might be good, like. I remember when I got started doing talks, I was also thinking like, hey, what are just topics that will be good in general? And also stuff that I can do. Like I, I have my own limits. I'm not an academic, for example. So I shouldn't do those kinds of talks. Like what are talks that give me energy that I love doing? So in the beginning, I had a simple recipe. Uh, I would find data on video games <laughs> and I would use that data to find a hack to make you better at playing the video game. Um, so my first talk on Spark, uh, like my first actual conference talk was about World of Warcraft's auction house system. Okay, and you know, I, I like the thing that I kind of planned that because I was like mentally reflecting and thinking like, oh, okay, like what what might be like a good step up here? Oh, I could try and I think if we do data science talks on data sets on video games, that has to be accepted somewhere. Uh, like mm-hmm. planning ahead a little bit like that is good, um, but again, I think the world has changed a little bit there. Yeah, but there aren't so many talks about. Uh, still, if you go to buy data, you don't see many talks about. Um, you know, World of Warcraft data. You see, like, <laughs> different kind of talks, like, more technical, more about, like, you know, business cases, and uh, this is how we used Library X to build Y, etc. But this is more fun, right? It, I mean, yeah. This is not the usual talk that we, we have. It's not the usual talk. No, well, I mean, the really funny thing was, like, I was doing the, the World of Warcraft talk, and, like, the room was packed. But mm-hmm. I thought people were interested in tech, but these were all World of Warcraft. Like, <laughs> like, I actually left the room. There was like a kind of a small queue, like a pretty big queue, actually, people asking questions. Uh, and they were all like w- active World of Warcraft players. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. <laughs> uh, like discussing if my part of the analysis was even accurate and that sort of thing. <laughs> I didn't yes. expect. So I, we, I, yeah. we need to, to wrap it up a bit. We, we have one more question from yep. Rosana uh, about... Uh, not about open source, but about your role as a research advocate. So how this role would be called uh, in some other places? So it sounds like um, evangelism position. Do you have any idea how it would be called in other companies? Um, well, it's funny because, um, you know, when I joined, so something I learned while being at Raza here, did you, did you know there's conferences for developer advocates? Yeah, I, I heard about that. Yeah, so I, I had no idea. Um, but it's like a thing, like, and it makes sense because um, there's, there's companies out there that kind of say, well, you know, our, our DevRel team doesn't do conferences because we can do other stuff that seems to scale better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because open source becoming kind of a norm, more and more people can, you know, pick up open source tools and stuff. So it helps to have people on top of that. Um, so that's something I totally didn't recognize. Like DevRel is actually a career path. Um, mm-hmm. I was completely obli- oblivious to it. Um, but it, it depends, like um, we, I, uh, I, in the marketing team, we have a, def- a person who has a developer advocate like title. Uh, Rachel, who's in my team has like senior developer advocate title. She was a developer advocate at Kaggle before. Um, oh, oh, my boss is uh, sort of leading the team. She's on developer advocacy as well. Uh, I know that, uh, I do know that a lot of people uh are interested in doing DevRel stuff and if i 
consider the people who tend to get jobs in this field, I do see a bit of a correlation with past experience doing talks at conferences mm -hmm. and like getting a, a career in developer uh, advocacy. Like I do see a bit of a correlation there. Um, it depends on the company. Like I think nowadays they're not expecting you to do traveling mm -hmm. <laughs> you're a developer advocate, but I do know that certain companies they do. Um, so, you know, Databricks, for example, I do know, I've heard stories there that if you're a developer advocate there, you're expected to go to like the big conferences around Europe mm -hmm. and the US. So people do a lot like of Strata traveling. And things like yeah, that. the, the O'Reilly things. Um, but now like I'm, I'm still learning the developer advocate bit, but uh, again, if I'm being completely honest, I'm still trying to figure out what it actually means to be a research advocate. Like, um, uh, there, there's some ideas that I have, uh, that I might want to be doing. Like one thought I'm, I'm thinking about doing now is I'm teaching people how to make virtual assistants and that's, that's great. Um, but now I'm sort of wondering, I think it might be more fun if I come up with a very specific virtual assistant I would like to have in my own Slack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's some stuff that automates some things away from me that are super personal to me, but I think it will be interesting for like developers to maybe see that, like how can you automate your life with Slack using Raza? Like I think that'd, that'd, mm -hmm. be, that'd be like a fun little experiment. Um, and, you know, there, there, I would also, this is active research, of course, but I would also like to be able to say like, hey, you know, here's like the, the standard manual of stuff that I sometimes have to do. Uh, can I like how hard is it to go from like markdown files to slackbot like that's also mm -hmm. stuff that I'm working on and like I have no idea how to do that yet but that's like active areas of uh, things that I'll be picking so up. that's the difference between a dev advocate and research advocate that you have this a bit of research component a like okay bit. how do you go from this uh, uh, bunch of markdown files to a slackbot that you know just helps with library and, and also like uh, it, it's two ways so I come up with some crazy research ideas. I give it a bit of a go. And mm -hmm. then I show it to the researchers and kind of go, do I have something here? Like, or is this a little bit crazy? And half the time it's crazy. Um, but uh, but sometimes I'm, I'm onto something. And, uh, and the other way around, like the research team kind of goes like, hey, Vincent, we, we like to think this algorithm works really, really well. And then on English, we can prove it does. Uh, could you ask around the community uh, to check? Like, we, we'd love to get maybe some non-English. And could you maybe uh, ask around and do that? And this is like a two-way communication thing. Okay. Yeah, that was great. Thanks a lot for, for coming to our event and sharing your experience uh, with us. Even though we a bit sidetracked from the open source topic, I still enjoyed a lot talking to you. Yeah, same. It's real we, fun. I learned many new things, uh, especially how to come up with a name uh, for the <laughs> open source library. Make names, IO. Make names. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks a lot. And... Uh, Yes, uh, I guess that's it. Thanks everyone else, uh, everybody who attended the event. Thanks for coming as well. And um, see you around. Yeah, well.